My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. When you do property cosmetic renos in your party of life, work shift work. It's the best way to get good money and be able to do a property cosmetic renovation. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyron Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with successful property investor and owner of Blue Gum Property, David Glover. Join us as we delve into the amazing profits he has made from his properties, the crazy things he discovered when undertaking a cosmetic renovation and much, much more. Glover starts off by telling us a bit about what he does and what he focuses on in his work. I own Blue Gun Property and I've recently been doing more property uh, development and acting as a buyer's agent but effectively, I, I believe that I engineer property uh, value. That's what I do. Well, I'm an engineer by profession. I uh, was lucky enough to, to kick off that way and so I use property projects are very much a project focused and um, being a process engineer um, you know I I actually look for how to create value because at the end of the day value is what people need and that's what generates wealth and if you don't add value to something then um, you're really just trading. On any given day, Glover is engaged in a variety of tasks including looking after his children and running his businesses. Oh, it's a combination of a lot. Um, we've, I've got a family. We've got the three kids. So um, my wife runs her successful business. So a lot of the time, I, I basically I enjoy um, looking after the family. We've got a number of businesses. I've got a horse adjustment facility as well. We've got the property business. We've got our property portfolio. So I'm very structured in my daily basis with, you know, getting up, heading to the gym and then, yeah, I've got to get through a little brief bit on email. I'll take care of what's been put down the day before to take care of things. And then, yeah, you've got to have some time where you're actually thinking about where you're headed and um, and I'll also do some forward planning as well as keeping on track of where we are with all our projects. Blessed with uh, two girls up and then and then uh, Hunter, so spaced around two years apart. Now they're in their mid-teen area. And that's that's been a whole journey in itself. Um, you know, sort of 15 years ago, I was one of the first guys in engineering that I knew that actually went out to, you know, to be the stay-at-home parent and then move into that 
phase where you have to learn how to raise a family, manage careers, and um, yeah, and then they evolve through those years, don't they? So you, you know, when they're younger through to now when they're teenagers, yeah, it's been a uh, an interesting journey and evolution of. Um, it's character building too. Having grown up on a small farm in central New South Wales, Glover delves into his background and upbringing. My dad worked in a, in a quarry actually. It was a cement producing town and so it was a combination of the small town area. But um, yeah, in that, you know, we had a really strong, a strong sporting background in our area. It's quite surprising how how, uh, how good some of our, our, you know, our sporting teams were. And we had some dedicated teachers in our area as well that, um, yeah, it was a little mini ecosystem, I suppose. We were very protected. My wife always ripped me off that I never saw the ocean till I was 18. But um, one of those things that, you know, when you grow up, you know, um, central New South Wales anyway, you, you don't need to go to the beach every day. You've got, you know, we, we had Dunn Swamp and big, you know, dams where, you know, you go canoeing and scouts was a big part of my background as well as as football and cricket. And, um, yeah, a community where it's only a 1,000 people really, you know a lot of people. We had, you know, like we joke about the old days where you'd get a paper licence and you'd walk into the police station and, they knew you, so you know they had. Um, yeah, you couldn't get away with too much because. Um, but it also, on the other hand, it was really good because it was an ecosystem of lots of different people um, that knew you and you knew them. And that's family. That's family because I think when you have small community, everyone can look out for each other. And also, too, if there's anything that you know, you can also help out with them too. You you kind of feel that sense of community. Yeah, I've replicated that now. We, we live 40K south of Brisbane in a smaller community and um, it is almost a similar effect and I love it. I, I love seeing my kids grow up in, a, in an area where they bump into people and they know them, you know, from, um, you know, from their sporting teams and all that, right? But when you're in the city, you know, when we're in our unit in town, you, you, you rarely get to know anyone outside of, um, yeah, of that unit basically. He goes on to tell us more about his high school and what he did after he finished university. Oh, no, sorry, the, the central table. And so, yeah, no, I, I grew up till I was 17 in, uh, so, Rolston Candos area and went to the local schools because that's that's what we all did. Oh, some people went away to boarding school, but um, we were, you know, um, small size school. I think my high school was 300 people in total. My year 12, um, there was 24 of us. We knew each other really well. Um, and then, yeah, when at 17 and, um, you know, off to Newcastle Uni, I went. So, um, yeah, headed over there to do engineering. We, we were at Newcastle and then, yeah, I, um, I got the opportunity after traveling the world with, with engineering to, to uh, move into consulting in engineering. And so, looked like Shana was with BHP at the time was um, going to go to Brisbane. So, it was like perfect, right? So, I took a consulting role in Brisbane. So, I came up, uh, moved in with her dad, and Shana got promoted to Melbourne head office. So I came to Brisbane, and Shana was in Melbourne. That was pretty funny. Hired by a well-known engineering company, Glover got a good head start when it came to his career. Started working straight away. Um, and about our third year, I got um, I got a part-time job with BHP Research, BHP Engineering actually seconded to BHP Research. So. 
while I was working, there were still the traineeships at the time, but that was finishing up. So they were transitioning it to, um, to kind of like part-time work. So both Shana and I were working for different engineering companies. Um, Shana was in a coal, coal operation and I was um, with BHP Engineering. And um, it was great. We, um, you know, you get to learn uh, in an organisation that's actually doing, you know, projects and stuff while you were at university. That sort of style completed around when we finished. Um, most companies started moving away from that style. They don't really employ part-time, but we were lucky. We were on that tail curve where um, you actually worked while you went to uni and um yeah a lot of people did it was normal while working at bhp engineering glover was thrown into a lot of projects which taught him many new skills changes in the industry were also happening at the same time we're both chemical engineers um and shana went on to do a phd in that where i i got straight into BHP engineering and was lucky enough to get taught at a really young age how to be a project manager and uh, we ran lots of I suppose small but quite interesting projects and you get your stripes you know the hard way you've you, you get thrown into some of the sites and and you've got to manage upgrades or some changes or at the time there was a big very big change in the industry with automation coming in so robotics coming in and there was um, cost pressures that was back when um, we had the recession and they were literally taking out 20% of the workforce um, at the time and so you were 20, 21 years old you know and you're seeing um, yeah, massive reductions in the workforce so much so that Newcastle Steelworks shut down and the smelter where I worked out at Tomigo, um, yeah, McKinsey just butchered the place. And, um, yeah, so you're seeing guys that have worked for 30 years, you know, just getting told to finish up in a you know, couple of weeks' time. It was an interesting uh, start of my career, let's put it that way. Glover talks about one of the most important set of skills he learned at BHP Engineering, one which came in handy on his property journey. The project management skills which, you know, um, Funny enough, yeah, it, it teaches you uh, it's, it's a it's a system and a process that you you get to clarify, follow, think about. It's it's been tested hundreds and thousands of times. I mean, I, I used a system that was obviously developed out of you know NASA, you know, so it went on to become what's called the Project Manager's Body of Knowledge. So PM Bach, you get taught very much deeply that in BHP engineering about how to apply project control principles so you get taught about finances returns seeking value communicating it to other people Um, that's become a big thing that I do now with my call option contracts is explaining the value that we're trying to achieve the intent bringing your stakeholders and creating your project plans creating your budgets executing the project and then reviewing the project so it's a framework of discipline um, that, yeah, helps one achieve and be able to review and learn. Whilst working at BHP Engineering, his wife and him saved up to buy a place of their own. So when we were 21, that's what got us going, Tyrone. I, um, I moved in with Shana's mum, actually, three months. I, I lived in their back 
back um, room, Shara and I saved all our money for three months straight. We um, we were twenty, and we um, decided straight away that we were buying a place, and um, that's what we did. We um, we did that, and lo and behold, we uh, brought a deceased estate when we were literally twenty one. Yeah, as soon as yeah, and we were still at uni um, when we did that. The purchasing of this property occurred before Glover was in Brisbane and his wife Shana moved to Melbourne and soon after, he purchased another property. We'd already purchased the property. We, were, we, we got in really early, I suppose. We decided straight away we wanted that property. We had that. We actually, yeah, when we were overseas, we had some mates live there for us and look after it and then um, yeah, we came back and we, we did another property project together. We brought our first farm, a 65-acre property in the vineyards at the Hunter Valley and it, um, it needed a big clean up and we built a new house and it was actually the day I finished laying the flooring in the build of the new house was the day I, I literally got in the car that night and drove to Brisbane to start work the next day and yeah, about two weeks later, Shana got sent to Melbourne. Coming up after the break, we'll delve deeper into David Glover's first property, Shana and I had already completed the cosmetic reno by the time we actually owned the property. The 65-acre property he invested in that turned out to reap amazing profits. They um, transformed this little two-bedroom illegal cottage that had no running water or sewage into a fully operational house in two weeks. One of the greatest highlights of his property investing journey. A simple, funny, crazy email had uh, led to that opportunity to sit down with... um, Gave yeah, such a legend of the industry over there. And that's next. I'm Tyne Shum and you're listening to Property Investory. In regards to his first property, he goes into detail about the deposit and how he managed to find the property. We went for our deposit and uh, at the back of the time, you didn't get a lot of freebies from the government in a way, right? You did get your wage, but we um, we literally saved uh, $15,000 in three months just to top up our deposit and off we went looking around for what we could basically afford and, you know, it was the first time I met a buyer's agent. So, he was a sales agent and Jeff showed us one place and I said, oh, you know, Jeff, that's sort of not what we're looking for and a bit of a chat and he said, look, come and have a look at this place. And he was a surfy dude from uh, from the Cahiba area in Newcastle, you know, near Charlestown. And so, he takes us to another agent's property and he goes, you know, look, this is what I think you could do with this one. And and I was like, yeah, you are so right, Jeff. And uh, yeah, so funny, my first ever purchase was in effect via a, a he was a sales agent. I suppose buyer's agency in Australia wasn't really well known back then, but he acted as a buyer's agent and he was brilliant. And um, yeah, I owe a lot to to, um, to Jeff. He did a great job. He showed us the property. And um, yeah, we brought it and then um, it was um, a deceased estate. Unfortunately, it went straight into um, probate and we were a little panicked because we were first purchase and and Jeff was great. He sort of said, oh, it's going to probate, which means one of the the, the uh, assets in the whole estate had been disputed, but the house was fine. And he said, look, mate, just go back to them and, and rent it from them while they're going through probate. It'll only take five weeks. And so we negotiated like, a, I think it was honestly, it was like $5 a week or something because it was only supposed to be 
for six weeks, but um, four months later, we'd been paying low rent and um, Shana and I had already completed the cosmetic reno by the time we actually owned the property. Glover explains what a probate is, something which played a great role in his first property. What happened was if, um, if the estates got a slight issue, so someone's either... Um, you know, wants to have something adjusted in it or there's problems with some of the paperwork of it, then um, they um, it's just the process of where they're going through tidying up someone's estate. And so they couldn't complete the sale of the property until that had um, legally been sorted out with the executors of the estate. So we knew it. there was no risk at the time that the property wasn't going to go through for sale. It was just some background information that was being taken care of by whoever was looking after the the estate um, paperwork. So it just sounded like a little bit of paper shuffling which allowed you to have that say six weeks to do your cosmetic renovation, live there on low rent. <laughs> Always look for a deal when an opportunity comes up, you know, just yeah, talk and um, figure out the way forward and um, it's surprising. Doing a cosmetic renovation of his first property was not a pleasant experience. It was not attractive, Tyrone. Um, think about this, right? Open up the front door and there's the uh, old toilet seat, right? Now, um, yeah, 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 yeah. So it was a pretty bad state and it smelled like that too, okay? And then there was vertical red, yellow, and um, yellow, red, yellow um, wallpaper on horsehair plaster. We took out about two and a half thousand pot plants from the backyard. Seriously, was this like a hoarding hoarder's house? <laughs> Not quite. I've had worse, but um, they were hoarders of yeah pot plants. Let's put it that way. So that was that was a pretty easy fix in a way. But um, yeah, um, good fun and um, yeah, it needed if nothing was straight in that property. Like it was, you know, when you're laying tiles and you're wondering why nothing looked square and for an engineer and especially my wife that just drove us nuts right so kind of got a uh, yeah he taught us a lot and like even the plaster I mean I didn't even know horsehair plaster was a thing you know you pull off wallpaper and I'm ringing up Ray going Ray there's like hair hanging out of the plaster and he just laughed you know he'd seen it all before so he was like no nah, mate it's all good <laughs> so, there's lots to learn bamboo wall fittings like um yeah, it was really... And we ripped up the carpet and there was polished floorboards underneath it. How good was that? He tells us how much of the work they did themselves and which parts they used outside for help and gives us some interesting advice when it comes to doing cosmetic renovations. That was that was all ourselves but then I did work night shift at the smelter so that's when you ran around and you knew all the tradies. So um, a guy I knew that knew a guy in the um, one of the other parts of the plant, I ducked down one night shift and... Next day, he ducked out, cleaned down the, the roof and painted it for us, you know, all at mates' rates. It was um, <laughs> a little good fun, yeah. When you do property cosmetic renos in the early part of your life, work shift work. It's the best way to get good money and be able to do a property cosmetic renovation. Six weeks later, Glover had to go overseas and had provisions in place when it came to looking after his property while he was gone. Oh, we got sent to Canada. So, Shana and I, off, off we go overseas the next year. So, um, my best mates moved in and uh, they looked after the place while they were finishing off uni um, and their their early work phase there for the year. So, they they looked after it while we were away and, and um, yeah, so 
it worked out really well. I, I wish I kept that place, but we we sold it because we didn't know any better at the time, and we brought a um, a mortgage foreclosure farm, and that was a whole journey in itself. Glover recounts the events which happened leading up to him purchasing a mortgage foreclosure farm. On night shift, Robbie rings up from a mate of mine working down at the cast house, and he goes, "Oh, one of the blokes just mentioned there's a, a acreage in the you know up at the vineyards, right, and it's." getting you know it's a mortgage foreclosure and so i um i rang the agent and then finished night shift um, rode on out on a motorbike had a look at this farm met the agent there and i made the offer and i said mate i've got to go to bed right i'm working nights and um so i woke up the next day and he's like yeah they've banks accepted your you know really low offer and i was like awesome and so um yeah so we brought a farm it's like you come home to your wife saying we bought a zoo (laughs) Uh, it was like that. She didn't even know. I, I sort of yeah, read, yeah, gone out, made the offer, shook hands, and said, "Righto, like if it goes through, it goes through. If not, but he was great. Once again, it's just a matter of, um, you know, um, you explain, you know, you you offer uh, the right price. You don't try and go too crazy. You you try and work with people, not against them. And um, yeah, you'll often find that you can pick up great opportunities in, in a flexible fashion. Adding value to the property happened quite quickly. It had an illegal house on it. So the guy had built it in the bend of the river thinking that council would never see it. And um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I went to a council and said, oh man, like, you know, and they said, yeah, we know about the place. And I said, oh, you know, you know, you know, I'm, I'm going to build another house on the thing. You're going to be, you know, hung up on it. They're like, look, as long as you're going to build a new house, we'll just turn a blind eye, right, for the next couple of weeks, you know, type of stuff. Like, okay, no worries. So, um, Ray and my dad and a few other old blokes, they all came out and um, that was unbelievable. They um, transformed this little two-bedroom illegal cottage that had no running water or sewage into a fully operational house in two weeks. And um, they were awesome, mate. They were just like, how good was that to work with those blokes, you know? And they were all retirees and... Yeah, they just dived on in and, and um, taught me a lot because I just wanted to burn it down, put a caravan in the big shed, right? And um, the solution, they're like, no, 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 we're not doing that. And so um, so out they all came and hooked in and, and it was amazing what um, what they achieved. And yeah, Dad and I fenced the rest of the property and we, we did, we did the right thing. We brought a, we, we built a Claritin big homestead up on the property on a lovely view spot and um yeah, and then life changed. So off we went again. Do you still have that particular property? No, wish I did, but geez, we made some good money out of it. Like that was a huge return. Yeah. The mortgage foreclosure farm ended up reaping a large profit. I went in at one hundred and sixty-two, one hundred sixty-three thousand, probably on an acreage that would have been worth say three, three fifty. We um, we built a really big homestead on it, big and three meter verandas. We had it for about. In two to three years, and we sold it just shy of seven hundred thousand. That's a phenomenal return. So, uh, yeah, de- definitely. I mean, like, could could that place have had other development potential besides building a homestead? Because you said it was acreage, so there's a lot of land there. Yeah, I wanted to do. I was thinking about that, but no, you still wouldn't be able to separate it. Now you're still sort of stuck around that hundred acre and. Tyrone, I kind of, yeah, you got to be careful with acreage. It's, it's great for doing cosmetic renos and be smart with, but uh, it's not a thing to, 
yeah, you want to be careful. Anything that you need to do a um, a zone changing, I think you're best to um, just wait for. I had that in Melbourne. We brought a when I went down to Melbourne where Shana was, um, we brought a five acre block at Rockbank, and it was in legislation to always be green zone. But look, it's a suburb now. So when you're at Rockbank train station, I had one, you know, just around the corner. There was an illegal dog fighting place that took 20 skips of um, rubbish off that property and um yeah it, it was it was in legislation to be green zone so i was like oh it'll never change zoning so i sold it and then two years later the zoning changed and it, i think it got sold for two or three million dollars oh know, about my god yeah i was i was not disappointed i made really good money we had a great time there but uh, it served its purpose and um but yeah you learn a few things along the way, don't you? For Glover, there's one kind of investment that hasn't been successful for him. Property's great. Shares are shocking with me. I have brought four lots of different share companies that have gone broke, like brand name ones and um, a couple of them in property, like they were property businesses. And yeah, I have a massively intact record of buying shocking shares. One of the highlights of Glover's property journey occurred when he made a trip to America with his family. Shana convinced me to head off for basically a three-month break to America. We took the kids. We lived over there in Arizona. And and it was in that time where I, I went out. You know, you drop emails out, right? It says, oh, Aussie, you know, guy in, in you know Phoenix, right? So I went and met um, oh, about nine different real estate agents. But the second agent I met was Mr. the guy that's basically Mr. Zillow in Arizona called um, Randy Courtney. And um, second guy I met over there and Randy, if I ever was able to record two hours of my life, that would have been the conversation. Sit down with a guy that's got basically a bank account of $700 million to buy properties and he's buying 100 a month, right, in his office. It was amazing. And um, at the time, you know, it was great to have a break, get over there, you know, be a tourist, do all that sort of stuff. But, you know, also to think about your business activities, your life, meet people, look at a different system. The American property system is so different to ours. And so I was doing like a study tour and meeting these people and having a look at their Airbnbs and their flips and and then to, um, yeah, sit down for two hours with Randy Courtney who was so generous with his time and explained to me all about, you know, Zillow was going into America and how they were preparing for Jeff Bezos to enter the property market there. And I was just stunned that... Uh, a simple, funny, crazy email had uh, led to that opportunity to sit down with, um, yeah, with such a legend of the industry over there. He lets us in on what he wrote in his email subject line that caught Randy Courtney's attention. I think it was the subject line. It was literally just Aussie guy in Phoenix, right? And that was that was like the subject line, right? And, he, and he'd been to like Melbourne the year before or something, right? And and that's what triggered it. He was just like, oh, it's an Aussie guy. Okay, I'll meet him. And they were all like that because if you try and meet people in Australia, they kind of feel like you're a competitor. But I think when you're a, an Aussie guy in America, they just go, yeah, I'll meet the little Aussie, you know, like this will be interesting, you know. So they don't take you as – and they don't have a competitive mindset anyway. Like they love to help everyone out anyway. They're always making the pie bigger. From that conversation with Randy Courtney, not only did Glover have a once-in-a-lifetime experience, 
he learned a great deal as well. I sat there for two and a half hours and listened. It was amazing. He he actually he told me his whole life story. It was amazing how he built the business, why he's flipped franchises as well in the real estate world, um, why you know Zillow, his own background, his own drivers, his love of sport, his his passion there. It was um, yeah mindset. Family, we spoke. He's very family orientated as well, so we connected on so many different levels. But I didn't have to say much. I, I literally was just given um, fifty years of experience um, of his experience and jammed at me in two hours, and I ate it up. It was wonderful. Yeah, you managed to get photos and reminisce over that moment too. No, I never got a photo, but we kept in touch since he sent me links. So when he does these, because he's been going into like vlogs and stuff, right? And so, you know, he's kind of like, oh, you'll send the link and I get to review his, um, you know, his script and stuff and I'll send it back and go, oh, you know, have, why don't you try this, Randy? And he's like, oh, good idea. And so he's he's a guy that he seeks and, you know, searches out people that, you know, he likes and bounces off. And, you know, he's, he's like, you know, late 50s, 60s and he's still innovative and looking for feedback and, yeah, looking for people to work with, you know. And, yeah, it teaches you a lot, doesn't it? So, inspired by David Glover's property journey, we'll keep the conversation going in a future episode of Property Investory. We'll discuss his strategy. We'd identified a great project opportunity and, and we'd taken a toehold and then off I went and um, started to talk to other people about doing a project. The project that netted him hundreds of thousands of dollars despite unfavorable circumstances. So, we did the DA and, um, and I was so focused on going through to building 14 houses, right? And I had my funding lined up and everything. His great advice when it comes back to giving to society. Then you've got to stand up every week and you have to basically justify what you've done in the world to make it a better place. Not justify, that's the wrong word, but explain to people what you're trying to achieve. And that's next time in a future episode of Property Investory. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then... Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.